Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how to truly live. You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. All right, let's turn to uh, the Old Testament. That's the left side of your Bible. Um, to the book of Ecclesiastes together. Um, it's uh, after the book of Proverbs. So if you know where Proverbs is, that'll be easy for you to find. It's right after that. I love my perspective. I don't know you guys get to see it all, but um, I see all kinds of things go on uh, in our midst. Uh, children worshiping by dancing uh, and, and climbing all around. Uh, we're thankful for God's grace in the midst of us today. Um, I'm glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, I got to, I got preached last week on Matthew 14, the miracle of Jesus walking in the water and Peter. But before that, I had five weeks where several men preached to us in our own congregation. I just want to again thank them for their faithfulness to the word and remind you of the grace that we've received in so many good gifts and men who are able to handle the word and preach that to us. It's a good gift for us. Uh, in that time, I really enjoyed being able to be preached to as well, but then also I was doing a lot of other things. I, I read four different books, two on theology, two on Ecclesiastes, along with the other six that I'm working on Ecclesiastes still. Um, other things going on with me and Jordan, trying to prepare for this next season, uh, but I also was able to enjoy some time with family, a little bit of vacation uh, I don't know if you've heard the story, but we attempted first to get up to Wisconsin, where Kristen's folks are from. Um, and we first stopped off in Ohio to see some old friends. Uh, some of you may know Dave and Sarah Jones. Uh, some of you are new, have no idea who this is. Just a family that looks nice next to us. Uh, but we had to stop there, uh, spend some time with them, dear brother and sister, where they're at there in Dover, Ohio. And the next uh, Sunday after we worshiped with them, we headed out to um, get to Wisconsin. We got to Western Ohio. And we got the call from Kristen's mom that said, I'm so sorry, the arch nemesis has struck. We've tested positive for COVID. So we turned around in Western Ohio, came all the way back home. Um, and that was uh, very sad. I don't know what the gnashing of teeth is in the scripture, but I think it happened in my van that day amongst our children. Um, it was brutal. So, uh, but that's okay. Um, we did some other things as a family, some fun stuff throughout the season. Um, the kids were part of the Justice Club celebration for Walk for Life. Uh, that was fun. Uh, we also tried some home experiments. Uh, this is Hudson making glow-in-the-dark slime. That's super fun, especially clean up. Um, and Ian did the, uh, the volcano with the, um, where the, where the, um, the Diet Coke and you put the Mentos in. It is amazing. It's well worth your time. You should totally do it. Um, so that was fun. We also... Um, we eventually got to Pennsylvania to see my folks because uh, my sister was getting married and having a celebration there. Uh, this is a picture of my dad with Afton. They had dug some potatoes. My dad's got a huge garden. They dug some potatoes together and washed it up with Pop-Pop. We took them home and they were delicious. Um, we also celebrated my sister. Sarah asked me, who's my youngest sister, she asked if I would help with the, the making of the meal. And this was the meal. So we did a big pig roast. It was absolutely delicious. Pulled pork. Oh, man, it was great. Uh, he is well done. I made sure of it. Um, so that was a little bit of what's going on. Um, 
Then we did make it to Wisconsin. Uh, we flew out, had some points on our cards, and we ended up making a quick trip out there. This is one of my nieces. We enjoyed a lot of good times with them. And of course, ice cream. Had to have dairy while in Wisconsin. Cheese curds, they brought all the good stuff home. So that was my time uh, a little bit as we finished out the summer and got ready for fall. All right, let's look at Ecclesiastes together. It's not a huge book, 12 chapters, but it is big enough that we won't be able to read the entire thing in one sitting here this morning. I usually like to do that if it's the right size of book that we can do that. It's just a little bit too much for us during this time. So I will encourage you rather to set apart time to sit down and read the entire book in one sitting, uh, whether it's with your community group, maybe with your family, or maybe it's you taking here's a wild idea, taking an hour alone away from everyone and sitting down to read the Bible. One of my favorite parts of our elder retreat that we took was simply four hours that no one was allowed to talk to each other to read scripture and pray. That was difficult. There's a lot of like, in a sense, work, like you're not used to that. But one of the best things is like unfettered time sitting in the word of God and listening. It's well worth your time to do this to the book of Ecclesiastes as well. My goal this morning is a little different than a normal goal that I would do. I'm not going to take a few verses and bring it all out and then give you the application for exposing what the author means. Instead, I'm going to back up a little bit, kind of like John talked about for the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to do my best to give you an introduction to it so that as we're going through, you'll kind of have a roadmap and understand what we're doing. You'll kind of have some expectations, what to look for. And again, I'd encourage you when you read it, when you read it, all right, by yourself, you'll understand what's going on. Don't be passive in this experience, but allow this word to change you and be involved. Uh, we're going to begin then today uh, by taking a look. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to kind of read the bookends. I'm going to read the first chapter, 1 through verse 11, and then we're going to go to the end in chapter 12. I'm just going to read verses 9 through 14. I'll give you a slight flavor for the book and help us start, and then I'll, I'll go from there. So let's go ahead, starting at Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. This is God's word to us. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is a new, this is new. This already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things, of later things yet to be among those who come after. And now let me turn over to chapter 12. Let's look at verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge in weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. 
of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word to us. Let's now pray for his gracious work as we consider it together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace. We ask you that you would be among us and work in us. We ask for not only open minds, but open hearts that would be willing to hear and change and grow. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace in Jesus Christ, who has made it possible for us to know the Father. Without you, God, we are only to be judged, and we have no future besides judgment. We thank you in Jesus that we have received the grace of God. I pray now as we open up the word together that you would teach us. We thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jordan. All right. Uh, my guess is that most of us have either been touched by or know a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes. Whether you know that you know the book of Ecclesiastes, that's another thing altogether. I'm guessing that you've probably used the phrase once in a while, there's really nothing new under the sun. You understand that phrase. That's from Ecclesiastes. Or you've used the phrase uh, concluding after really working at something and seeming not to get anywhere that you're striving after wind. That's from Ecclesiastes. Or maybe you have considered the length of some books and the multiplicity of different books and all different things and you like the quote from chapter 12 that says, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Kids, that's a good one to remember when your parents ask you your homework. Um, or maybe you don't know anything about the Bible. Maybe you're just joining us, just jumping in here. That's all right, too. You probably know the song from the folk rock band The Birds. They sang a rendition back in 1965, Turn, Turn, Turn. Almost the entire text comes from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. I think there's like four words, literally, that aren't in the text that are in that song. So at, at one stage or another throughout life, we've, we've been touched by Ecclesiastes, understanding whether we're using it or whether it's just kind of affected us in some way. Again, you may not even be a Christian, but you probably know something about Ecclesiastes. My guess is that most of us, if we've read the Bible through, um, we've read this and we did think it was pretty interesting. I mean, there's some incredible stuff in here and some thought-provoking things. Uh, some of you have even recently read David Gibson's little book called uh, Living Life Backward. Excellent resource, kind of a little commentary. Um, but on the whole, uh, if I consider my whole life, I, I, I personally and people that I know haven't spent a lot of time in Ecclesiastes and certainly not understanding it. Oftentimes we use it and find it, and even though it doesn't get a lot of playing time in general, we actually find it littered throughout our culture even. I'm talking about not just our Christian culture, but our, our secular culture as well. Uh, really, the sayings of Ecclesiastes are very timely. They're very wise and they're attractive, whether you're a Christian or whether you're an atheist. They make sense because they deal with real life. They get down to the real common experience of all humanity. So we know the book gets used a lot, but uh, the question should then come, well, why are we studying it though? Like, what, what, what is it for? Why should I be preaching this? Now, I would, of course, tell you that it's, it's one thing to, to, to just kind of read it, but another thing to spend time, weeks and now probably even months for us, to preach through a book like this. You and I might approach this book 
kind of as a comprehensive study on wisdom sayings. That would be a good thing. You know that Cornerstone, we're, we're committed to expository preaching, to taking the text seriously and working through uh, section by section to understand it well as we read these verses. And hopefully, finally, you'll be able to understand some of those hard sayings throughout Ecclesiastes and use them properly. Um, I hope that happens. I hope you can at least understand them properly. But we want way more than that. There's a tendency for us, especially wisdom literature, for us to get into it and think that it's a big treasure chest, for us to kind of pick through the gold and be like, oh, this is amazing, and kind of hold on to that and use it well, or then go back and dig through some more, and oh, this little piece is really good. It's kind of like that idea of seeing the forest for the trees, or they say, don't miss the forest for the trees. What I'm saying is these individual pieces as we go through Ecclesiastes, like the individual trees of a forest, if you just stay there, they're amazing. I mean, the bark is incredible, and the root system, and the leaves, and how it puts forth fruit, and it's amazing. These trees are so cool and very useful to us. But I want to encourage you. The, the writer here didn't just put out an individual tree, and then it's like a totally different tree over here, but rather planted a forest, something for us to see the whole, and that composition together, and the way it's shaped, and all the different species that are in there are meant to tell us the bigger picture. And so I want us to make sure, as we go through and we do learn the trees, we understand the shape of this forest, we see the bigger picture of Ecclesiastes. In that way, I don't want us to just pick and choose what we want to have out of this book. I want to make sure that we hear the author for what he's saying and then wisely respond you know, in faith and obedience. So if we're not simply looking to get a better handle on some of these little wisdom phrases, why are we taking the time to preach through Ecclesiastes? Well, the first most obvious answer to that question comes to us from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's why we preach all of the Bible, right? We know this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? Teaching. That's crazy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, or so that, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Bible tells us that every single part of the Bible is worth our time. It's worth us even teaching and working through because it will pay off. It will build us up in hope in all these ways that it says it will, equipped for every good work. So the, the right question then, of course, like, okay, so we're supposed to do this. But the right question for us as thinking, uh, desiring people is, from 2 Timothy 3, how will Ecclesiastes profit us? How will Ecclesiastes equip us for every good work? What I am trying to do is over the next few weeks and months is to answer that question as we go along and hopefully build us up as we get into the meat of Ecclesiastes. But right now, let me kind of sum it up in one sense like this. Ecclesiastes is going to help us think about and then wrestle with real life difficulties things that you and I kind of don't want to talk about, things that are uncomfortable, things that we don't know what the answer to the question is, and so we kind of shy away from it. Ecclesiastes hits these head on. It's not a book of answers. It's a book of questions. Now, there certainly are answers by God's grace, but they're not what we might expect. They're very simple, yet they're perfect and profound. It's going to deal harshly with some of our preconceived notions ripping them apart, and making us stand bare with the rest of humanity 
in the blistering cold of the real human experience. We don't have some sort of blanket to cover us. We have to hit it head on. For those then who will listen to this and engage and think along with this man, we will be turned into, to some degree, we will be turned into philosophers. But not just philosophers who think and sit in ivory tower. Philosophers who think and then do because they have learned something about wisdom. So with our time today, I want to answer some preliminary questions that will help us in our study in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to take some time and I'm just going to offer you eight questions and some answers to those with a special interest at the end of really understanding the nature and message of this book. So here are the questions. Number one, why is this book called Ecclesiastes? Number two, who wrote this book? Number three, where is this book in the story of the Bible? What kind of book is it? Number four, what is the structure of this book? Is it like a helpful outline when we're reading it? Number five, who is the audience or who is he writing to? Number six, what are the keys to interpreting or to understanding this book properly? Number seven, what are the main themes that run throughout the book? And then number eight, why did he write this book? So I'm just going to jump right in. Number one, here we go. The first question, why is this book called Ecclesiastes? It's not a term that we use very often, not something we're familiar with besides what the Bible says. We've turned to this book in our English versions, and it says Ecclesiastes. Uh, you'd think that this is some sort of a cognate of the actual Hebrew word. Maybe that it sounds something like that. Uh, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Job, they all in the Hebrew sound a lot like our English word for those names. But that's not true of Ecclesiastes. In fact, if you were to be able to read Hebrew and you opened the Hebrew Bible and looked, then the title would be Kohelet. Doesn't sound a lot like Ecclesiastes. Well, that's because it doesn't, it's not saying that. It's Kohelet. It's a title. It's not a name of a specific person, like a proper name. It's, it's actually a title or a nickname, in a sense, and I'll explain that as we get through it. But Ecclesiastes is different. The Hebrew Bible entitles it Kohelet. And when you look there in your own Bible, you're going to see, it's on the first page, Take a look in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 12. He's going to call him the preacher. That's going to be the name that he used. That's the word that's translated out of Kohelet. But Kohelet doesn't exactly mean preacher. This is a, one of the unfortunate difficulties when we're trying to provide the best interpretation of an ancient text. And I'll get to that soon. It's not that it's wrong or as though it doesn't matter. It's just not broad enough to understand this term. Now, in the 3rd and 2nd century B.C., Hebrew scholars set out to create a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So the Hebrew Bible is written in mostly Hebrew, a little bit Aramaic, but in the 2nd, 3rd century, when they mostly spoke Greek, they set out to make a translation so that people could read that well in that language. When they did this, this is, and if you, if you don't know, it's called the Septuagint or Septuagint the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's most likely what Jesus and several of the other uh, apostles and in that whole early church probably were reading. Some of them may have been instructed in Hebrew and been able to read, but it's, in a sense, the reading of the common person. They were able to read that in the Septuagint. Fast forward a little bit of time, and oh, I'm sorry, and in that, instead of Kohelet, it was called Ecclesiastes. That was the translation of it. It was trying to understand kahal, which means to call, to assemble people. And when it said this, the word for that was ecclesia, the assembly. We've probably heard that word. 
Ecclesiastes, therefore, was the best translation of that word. And so when they wrote it in the LXX or the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it was called Ecclesiastes. Fast forward a bit, Jerome writes the Latin version for the Roman Catholic Church in the 4th century, AD now. He comes along and he does the same thing. Instead of translating it back to Kohelet, he sticks with Ecclesiastes. And this then sticks, in a sense, throughout much of the beginning of church history. And so as we as English speakers, it's kind of been handed to us. And although we would probably, I would like it to actually be titled Kohelet, uh, Ecclesiastes is what church history knows as this book, and it's totally fine for us to call it that as well. But this leads to my second question. Who wrote this book? Now, this may seem like a rather straightforward question, and it is, but I'm afraid that the answer is far from simple. I spent so much time, this is like kind of the, the nerdy uh, historical uh, research side of all this, trying to tear apart a text and understand why you would say with this person or that person is actually the author. I wish I could simply go with an older traditional view that Solomon was the writer and be done with it, but unfortunately the evidence is to the contrary and uh, I, it's a little bit difficult for me to refute it. So when we begin to pay attention to the style of the writing, and also the historical circumstances, and even some of the indirect references that are used, we begin to understand that this book was likely penned by someone other than King Solomon. The author refers to Kohelet as a son of David, a king of Jerusalem, but get this, he never identifies him with the name Solomon. Now, that's, in, that's to us, maybe we're like, ah, oh, but he's a son of David. No, no, no. The rest of Solomon's writings, Proverbs, there's even two psalms where he's named. And the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, all has Solomon identifying himself as Solomon. Ecclesiastes, though, does not do that. It's far more about the, the association of who he was. It never calls out Solomon's name at all. Now, rightly so, we think about the wisdom of this book and think, oh, it must have been Solomon. But it's certainly possible that he wrote this in, in, in Ecclesiastes, but it's also possible, and I would even say probable, that it was someone else using the Solomon persona to write in such a way that makes sense of the king's experiences and his wisdom. Now, this is a common form. This is not crazy to think this way. Um, it's, it's not plagiarism. It's not dishonest to do so. In sense, since he didn't say, it's Solomon, he wasn't saying that it was him, but rather helping us see things from the perspective of someone who is so wise, so wealthy, had everything that he could possibly have, and have the right to speak about these things. Uh, there are other, if you remember this, this, should not, this shouldn't shake our foundations. I hope you guys know that we are not 100% sure on several different of the books who wrote them. Some don't even identify themselves who wrote this or that book of the Bible. That doesn't shake our foundation in the authority of Scripture. It just means that we're being honest and saying it was a long time ago and the person didn't identify themselves. We're doing our best to identify them as we read. Let me remind you, though, that being Solomon doesn't make one author more authoritative than another. This writer was just as much under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit as any other writer of the Scriptures. Our author seems to be some sort of a framer. What I mean by that, and you'll see it in a moment, he takes the autobiography of Kohelet and he presents it to us. 
We'll get there in a moment here, and we'll see how he presents his readers this because it seems to be the best way for them to understand the wisdom that he's about to impart. Now, before I move on, let me just talk about the name. I said before that to call him preacher wasn't exactly right. It's, It's okay to call him this, but it's an unfortunate translation. The name literally means one who assembles or assembler. The word comes from the cow, feminine, singular participle of the root kahal. There, you got your Hebrew lesson, okay? Kahal is the word here that's used, and it literally means to call or assemble together. So you can see the question mark that should arise, like, how is that the preacher? Well, think about ecclesia, ecclesia, the church gathered. You can think now about if it was a church that was gathered, that you'd be a preacher to that. But if we back up again, historically understanding one that called these together, preacher's not the best way to talk about this. The origin then mixed with the character of the book helps us to see that Ecclesiastes is not so concerned with preaching per se, but rather with calling together or assembling those who are looking for answers to life, who are looking for wisdom. Kohelet is a wise sage prepared to talk about life's greatest questions to all that will come and listen. Kohelet is extremely important because almost the entire book comes as a quotation from his lips. He's the central speaker. His speech begins in verse 2 of chapter 1 and goes all the way through 12.8. So the very end, verses 9 through 14, are the bracket of the other end. 1.1. 12, 9 through 14, those are our brackets. The rest is speech by Kohelet that this writer is putting into place. Uh, Right at the beginning, we see him say, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, and then he begins the speech. Then at the end of this, 1280, finally comes out, talking about vanity again, and verse 9 picks up and he says, besides being wise, the preacher, or Kohelet, also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. At the very least, then, the book is written by someone who is quoting Kohelet with a small but powerful final statement in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. So we go back. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Well, I don't exactly know. Um, But I am confident that we can know that this book was written, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a wisdom theologian basing his presentation in the experience of the likes of Solomon the king. He fears God, and he aims to convince his readers or listeners to do the same. So that leads us to the third question. Number three, where is this book in the story of the Bible, and what kind of a book is it? Well, this is a piece of wisdom literature. You've heard me say this before, but when we look at the structure and the content and the writing style, we actually find that this book is very unique, but it still falls within the genre of wisdom literature. We're talking about books like Proverbs and Job and even places like the Song of Songs and a few of the Psalms themselves. They are wisdom literature. Now, let me talk about wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is something that is personal and it's a pragmatic study or a practical study of how to make good choices in your life to have the best outcomes. We're talking big picture here, not so you get the most stuff. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making wise decisions, the best choices in your life for the best and fullest life possible. Interestingly enough, it wasn't just Christians that were concerned about this or believers or Hebrews. Secular wisdom was really after the same thing, just without God at the center of it. Um, 
They too wanted the answer, the question, they wanted to answer the question, how do I make the best choices in life? Wisdom pursued that answer and tried to give it uh, real legs to be able to work. Again, like I said, it's very practical. Wisdom isn't something that's just out here, some sort of ivory tower philosophy. No, no, no. Also, wisdom is not about being super smart. Wisdom is not about your IQ. Wisdom is not about being clever and witty. Wisdom is not at all about something that's found on the inner self. There's other names for that kind of stuff. We're talking about true wisdom that understands that it needs to be something that's out there to learn and understand so I can apply it to my life and live wisely on this earth, in this cosmos, properly. It's outside of a person, a person must seek it. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, this should not surprise you. I mean, Job talks about going and seeking after wisdom, trying to find it. Even down in the depths of the earth, he's trying to get it. In the words of Proverbs, over and over, he says, in all you're getting, get wisdom. You have to go out and get it so that therefore you can live by it and practice it so that you will grow. And if we turn to the book of Proverbs of the New Testament, James, James 1.5 tells us, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. So we recognize that it's not an internal thing. It's not about being super smart. Wisdom is an external thing about understanding the world around us and learning how to make the wise decisions for the best life that's possible. But Ecclesiastes is not the same as Psalms or Job or Proverbs. Um, the book of Proverbs is exactly what it says it is. It's all these small individual sayings, these little pithy statements that help us in practical situations, the way that we think about this or that, practical attitudes or behaviors that will help us live everyday life. But the book of Job and Ecclesiastes are more concerned with what's called speculative wisdom. You hear the word there, speculation wrestling with the deep struggles of the world and of life and the deep questions, speculating about them, trying to understand. But even Job and Ecclesiastes are different. In Job, you have a narrative, right? You get the story of Job, kind of from what his, his trials and struggles all the way to when God brings it all back as well. But in the midst of that big narrative, you know what the biggest chunk in there is? It's all dialogue. An important word, dialogue. Ecclesiastes is going to be a monologue. But in, in, in Job, we have this conversation between Job, who's experiencing sufferings, his friends saying, why is this happening to me? His friends are coming along and say, listen, you must have done something wicked. Because like, justice always works out on earth, right? We know better than that. That was one of the original messages, though, here. Eventually, one of his friends is like, no, 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 that's not the point, guys. You're missing it. Job is right. He didn't do anything wicked. But eventually Job meets God and he explains, Job, you, there's one major problem. You forgot, I'm God and you're man. And so the right response is to worship and to leave God's things to God, to worship and obey him. And so that's what Job is about in one sense. But we get to the book of Ecclesiastes and we see him present this wisdom in a monologue. It's one man's presentation and some of the most difficult questions in life. In one sense, he represents everyone all of our experiences, from the greatest down to the least of us. He's tried everything. He's earned the right then to comment on all of it. The book of Ecclesiastes then is not bound to a particular moment in the history of Israel. 
It certainly comes from a particular moment, but doesn't, it's not bound to one. Uh, say like one of the prophets who came to encourage or convict when Israel had something going on, a very specific time period. It's not like that. The book of Ecclesiastes is timeless. And in a sense, it's boundaryless. It goes far outside the walls of the nation of Israel. It speaks to the question of every generation and every culture. Whether you are an Israelite or an Egyptian, Kohelet's words are for you. So now question number four comes. What is the structure? As I'm trying to read this book, is there an outline that's discernible, that's helpful? Well, it kind of depends on who you ask. You read one book and it says, there is no way we can figure out any sort of discernible outline of this at all. It's all over the place. He goes here and he goes there and he talks about this and he talks about that. And it's all wise, but we're not really sure if this guy was just collecting things or he was just a rambler or what was going on. And then you read others who have taken very seriously to the point where they were counting out the letters and figuring out this structure. It's amazing. Uh, I am going to take the position that we do see a specific but rough outline in this text. I'll show you that as we kind of keep on, and especially as we start next week into the beginning of this. It'll make more sense as we kind of work through it. But I will say, when you are reading Ecclesiastes, because that's what I want you to get here, when you are reading Ecclesiastes, it will be helpful for you to follow the questions that he asks. When he asks a question, follow his answer and see if you can tell me what he answers himself to that question. In the midst of that, you're going to come across phrase that repeats and repeats and repeats. And then another phrase that repeats and repeats and repeats. That's what the beauty of sitting down to read the whole book at once will help you with. You're going to realize that these phrases are on purpose. And don't think that you know what the phrase means the first time. Once you get to the second time, you're going to realize, oh, he said that at the end of this thing. And he said the same thing at the end of this thing. Guess what? You keep reading, it's going to come up again. All of these different explanations are going to help you understand what he means when he repeats that phrase. So there's like a little bit of a, a helpful thing as you're trying to outline this and think this through. Look for the repeating phrases or repeating ideas. You'll see it all throughout there. It's going to be helpful as you look through Ecclesiastes. All right, number five. Who is the audience or who is he writing to? Uh, well, he doesn't tell us that here either doesn't tell us who he's writing to. Uh, but if you've been paying attention, you might realize and be able to piece together what I'm about to say next. Ecclesiastes is certainly written for the Israelites. It's in their canon, it's in their Bible, but it seems as though this book was not primarily written for those who are inside of covenant-keeping Israel. There are 37 times that God's name is mentioned. Zero of them are Yahweh. That's the covenant name, Lord, the God of the covenant with his people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. None of these are Yahweh. They're all Elohim, which is the general term for God, the creator God, the one that many would use, whether they believed in Yahweh or were in covenant with him or not. It's a far broader term in one sense. It appears that this book had a much wider circulation than most of the Hebrew canon, most of the Hebrew Bible. And it was meant to be heard by all the nations who sought after wisdom. I would go one step further, though, and say that I think this book, I, I'm willing to, to fudge on this, but I, I think this book is actually one of the most academic and realistic missionary tracts in the Bible. 
What I mean is that it's for those who are seeking. And it is meant to show them that there is something better than whatever else they're trusting in. There's something that makes sense of their situation. And so what I'm going to say here is that if you have an unbelieving friend that concerned, there's concern about the big questions in life, have them read Ecclesiastes with you. Work alongside of them to understand and try desperately to answer these difficult questions. The author is not afraid to ask questions that we as humans just barely dare to ask in front of other Christians. Sometimes we're a little bit scared of this, but eventually it's going to bring us out to a point, not only that will give us some answers, but he will bring us out to a point of judgment. He'll bring us out to eternity, and he's going to give us answers of truth. This book was written to the Hebrew people, but it was also written to anyone who truly sought wisdom. And therefore, it's for all of us and for all of our friends. Anyone who's a thinking person who wants to answer some of these questions will benefit from this because they're going to be driven back over and over again to the truth. It's the ability then for us to live the best and most meaningful life possible. All right, number six, what are the keys to interpreting or understanding this book properly? There are several little things that really could be helpful for us as we study this along. I just want to take the time to point out three, though. The first thing is this. <clears throat> it's understanding the identity of Kohelet, or at least whether he's a believer or an unbeliever. Is he actually one who loves God or does he not love God? Is he one who understands God and is willing to work through it, or is he a skeptic and says this all doesn't matter at all? There's a disagreement between several scholars. There's good viewpoints on either one. Um, but I just want to make the point here that it's important that we understand that before we interpret the book. Um, there are several scholars who conclude that the book, that its author, or Kohelet, is one that does not love God, but he's simply giving us a critique of the world as it is without the true God of love, Yahweh. And in this view, the truth only comes out in the final verses where the real author shows that Kohelet is actually wrong about all of life, that ultimately the world, you know, worldly wisdom leaves someone in eternity, in their eternity, up to fate or up to some sort of unknown God whatsoever. So that Kohelet doesn't really know God, but he's a critic and kind of puts those things out there. In this view, then, Kohelet is the foil or is an example of what's wrong. So that when he gets to the end of the book, he's like, son, don't do what Kohelet did. You should follow God. You should fear him and keep his commandments. Um, just so you know, I understand this view, but I reject it. I don't think it's the, what's happening here, personally. I don't think it's unorthodox to believe this. There's good Christians who do believe this, but I don't think it takes seriously some of the things that are happening throughout the book. And I think what's actually at stake is that it overlooks the intention of what the author is trying to do. I would follow the conclusion that Kohelet is not an unbelieving skeptic, but rather he is a God-fearing apologist. Hear that word carefully. He's a God-fearing apologist, a man of wisdom and experience who seeks to be realistic with all of humanity. He's not trying to play games. He's not speaking Christianese. He's speaking the language of the people and bringing them to the point where we all say, what in the world is this all about? That's what he's trying to do. Uh, you will hear this as we work through it in the coming weeks and months here as we preach. That's the one thing. That's the first thing as you're reading. Uh, you, need, you have to make that decision, whether or not he is a, a believing person or unbelieving. It's going it's it's to change the way that you think about the rest of the book. But the second thing that you need to think about is the word hevel. 
I didn't say a cuss word, I said hevel. H-E-V-E-L, or you could spell it H-E-B-E-L, depending on your Hebrew pronunciation that you'd like. The word is absolutely critical to the message of Ecclesiastes. Now, you probably know the word as vanity. That's what we read here in our ESV version here. It's the very beginning of Kohelet's quotation and the very end. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Then chapter 12, verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. You're going to see it used over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used 37 times here, more than all the rest of the Old Testament combined. And it's this central thing that we need to understand. If he's using it so much, we better understand the word. If he's kind of pinning it all on this. And I'm guessing that some of you have read the book in different translations, uh, KJV or the ESV, NIV, the NASB, they, they, they talk about it as vanity, meaninglessness, or futility. Uh, or you might give that, I think the new NIV talks about it as absurdity. All these words, I want to be careful, all these words are fair translations of the Hebrew word hevel, but none of them capture its broad range of meaning. That's really important to us. The word hevel uh, literally means breath or vanity. So it's got both that, that, that wide semantic range, okay? So it could be breath or vanity. Um, but it, let's be honest. Breath of breath, says the preacher, all is breath. doesn't have the same ring to it. It's not really very understandable versus, oh, it must be vanity for sure. Vanity or meaninglessness, then, are they're not inappropriate translations, but they are more on the side of interpretations of that word instead of just giving us that bare word by itself and leaving it up to us to understand it in context. What I'm saying to you is that we have to take that word seriously before we start to use it and interpret it the incorrect way from the get-go. It's important because this word simply, if it means simply vanity or meaninglessness, it will cause us to interpret the book a certain way. I want you to think about this. If, if everything truly is vanity, everything is pointless, everything is meaningless, if that's what this book of the Bible is telling us, if Kohala is telling us that life doesn't matter, it's pointless, then shoot, we should just skip to the end of the book where he corrects all this problem and gives us the, the truth. No, fear God and keep his commandments. But is that what Kohelet is saying? Kohelet has nothing helpful for us believers if that's true because we know that the rest of the Bible tells us that life is not pointless. Life is not meaningless. There's great and deep meaning, even in the physicality that we indwell right now. And so for us to just jump on that and say it's all vanity, it's all meaningless, may be shortcutting what Kohelet is telling us. Uh, it is, we know this, but if, if we see the word more broadly, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess then, I'm gonna give you another translation, mere breath, again, that's a, that's a fair translation, mere breath, then we might start to see the genius of him using this word. Kohelet is making an important point when he says this. Life does seem to be a great mystery at times. In fact, it seems vain or empty or meaningless at certain times. But perhaps if life is not meaningless, but rather enigmatic, brief, um, difficult to grasp and transitory, we could better understand it as mere breath or vapor. 
It's real. It's not unreal. It's not meaningless. It means something. But think about what breath or vapor is. Um, How many of you have had the experience of leaving very early for work before the sun or maybe when the sun is starting to come up and you can see on the roads at certain patches, fog. All of us in some way have probably experienced fog. My study faces the front of our house and I can look out across the road and across the road is a big bean field over there. Um, if I have my binoculars, sometimes I can see turkey and deer way out there, but not very often. But what I can see almost every morning is this thin, mysterious layer across the bean field, about maybe five feet thick, but it's a thin cloud that has settled down on top of the beans. If you were to go look at that bean field right now, you'd call me a liar, right? No, you understand. The fog burns up once the sun hits it. It's gone. It's there. It's transitory. It's gone. Now, that does not mean that that fog is meaningless or that it's not real or that it's just an idea. In fact, if you were to walk through that fog, maybe as you have done maybe in your life, eventually you will develop water droplets on your clothing. You will eventually get wet. It is not to say that that fog or that vapor is meaningless, but it certainly is enigmatic and wonderful and mysterious and difficult to grasp and transitory, and in a few moments it's gone. Could we see then that he perhaps is talking about it in this way? Hevel, breath, it has this type of nature to it. Like fog or mere breath, the nature of our lives is short, transitory, enigmatic, and it can be difficult to hold on to. That doesn't mean that it's easy for us to understand or that sometimes it just feels like it's absolutely meaningless. That's true. We've all experienced it. That's why he brings this up. I do this one thing. I thought this was going to happen. And all of a sudden, it's like nothing I did mattered at all. It's meaningless. And we call it out and we quote Ecclesiastes, like striving after wind, mere breath. This is something that we have to take seriously, but doesn't mean that it's all pointless. Lastly, that's the second thing that you need to think about in these tips of reading the book. But lastly, you need to understand what Kohelet means when he says, under the sun. Um, We use this phrase to describe everything, everything under the sun, anything and everything within our experience. That's what we say is under the sun. And in some respects, that's exactly right. But when Kohelet uses this term, he is speaking about our observable, provable experience in this world. There is a ceiling to our knowledge and our wisdom and our experience. None of us have gone past the grave and returned and now we're living again. No, that's, not, that's not what has happened to us. We have a common experience under the sun. It's all done under the sun. We do not know what lies beyond our experience. And we long to know, and we even attempt to know what could possibly be out there. And I'll tell you why that is. It's because, chapter 3, verse 11, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Kohela is using this phrase to show us our common experience of limited earthly wisdom. There are more things, but uh, these are three tips that will help you as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, number seven. What are the main themes of this book? Well, there are many important themes throughout the book. The best way, of course, to explore those is to show up week after week and grow with us and learn about these. But I will give you a teaser here about some of the themes that we're going to see. Most of them actually stem 
from problems that Kohelet is trying to figure out. The problem of satisfaction. The problem of time. The problem of inconsistency. The, the problem of death. The problem of injustice. And maybe the worst of all, the problem of chance. He takes the time to work through all of these. All of these themes will drive the writer back to seeing all things under the sun as things that leave us at the mercy of the one who is outside of our space and time and experience. In other words, the one who is outside of being under the sun. In other words, it will drive us back to God. Okay, final question, number eight. Why did he write this book? Kohelet is a deep thinker. He's like a, a Renaissance man of time and experience. He is, uh, by virtue of his age, intelligence, and desire, someone who is a critic of life and everything that is supposed to make sense. He's a philosopher trying to answer the most important question that anyone can ask. So kids, if you, kids, if you haven't asked this question, you eventually will. What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What is it supposed to all add up to? What is the meaning of life? This is exactly what he's trying to get to. He's not a young man, and so he's seen it all. The good, the bad, the baffling. And he's lived to see a, a life full of frustrations, inconsistencies, and injustices. And Kohelet is just, he's brutally honest. He's so harsh at points. He asks questions and answers those questions in ways that many of us would never dare bring up in a group of Christians where you and I might truly find it difficult to answer an awkward question and say, well, Romans 8, 28, uh, all things work together for good. He says, no, under the sun, all things don't work together for good. Go ahead, look around you. Righteous people die young. People who are evil prolong their life through doing evil. That doesn't work out under the sun. And so he points back and really slams us with questions that we're like, whoa, maybe I thought we weren't supposed to answer that way. He takes that seriously to show us that those are real-life experiences under the sun that we don't have answers for. Now, our answers when we do Romans 8.28 is far more based on faith, far more based on the revelation that God has given to us. But don't jump ahead of yourself. Deal with this question. That's what he does for us here. He says under the sun, it doesn't all work out. Sometimes the righteous perish and the evil person continues to grow. Kohelet wants his readers to seriously wrestle with the difficult questions about the meaning of life, exploring all of these different things that make us uncomfortable and really cause us to doubt our cheery disposition about how we think about our existence. So in this book, perspective is everything. Kohelet will be our guide on a journey, a thought experiment about the meaning of life. He will give us a very real human under the sun perspective. This perspective can rightly leave us seeing life as temporary, frustrating, and unjust. Our author agrees with this perspective. He struggles too. He doesn't know the answers right off the bat. He has lived all of these things and he admits this. But if we stop here, we are left with really only one of two ways to live. If you believe that the world is meaningless, it doesn't matter, there's no point you're left with really two options. You can either be a hedonist, an Epicurean, or you can be a nihilist, a nihilist, 
What I mean by that is there are choices that you can make in life now that you know that none of it matters. These are the choices that you have without God. If all of life is meaningless, then you should live it up for yourself. Go have a good time. Get as much pleasure and power and productivity and notoriety and everything you can jam into your life in this experience. Get it all because you're just going to die. So just enjoy what you have. Who cares about rules? Like, it doesn't matter if, if everyone's going to die. Rules don't really matter. Just do whatever serves you the best. Even if it's like philanthropy and helping others because everyone else sees you really well. Do you understand? Like, like, I want what I want to make me look good and enjoy all I can out of this life. Or maybe you're on the dark side. Nothing matters. So I might as well not even be here. It doesn't matter at all. Life doesn't matter. Death becomes us all. There's no point to life, and it is absurd. Very dark place. But it rightly understands, without God, what does any of it matter? I'll just expire anyways. I return to the ground. It's all dust. Who cares? Both of these responses, I want you to get this, both of these responses are reasonable if there is no God. They make sense. But what separates Kohelet from every other secular wisdom teacher is the fact that he knows God. He knows this God. He's lived under him, the God that has revealed himself to man. And that this means that all people can know significance in their life. There is meaning. He knows that all men have been created and must answer to their creator for how they have lived. He knows that we must face the judge. And I just want you to think about this. This is good news. It actually means that there's meaning in life. It means that we now have a different option. That there is one who's created us, one who is good and will give us life. We know the story, but let me keep going here for a minute. You and I are going to experience over the next coming weeks and months exploring this book for all that he is going to walk us through all these different valleys and heights and understanding these things and trying to do our best to, to understand them. But today, I want to just zone in on this idea of the news that he's giving to them. The good news that we know is not only that there's a judge, but there's a judge who was the benevolent creator of the universe, who made us who gave to us, who gave himself to us. The problem is we know that we have rebelled against him. In unrighteousness, in sin, we have hated him. We have done what we want to do. We rejected him as king, and we do the things that we want to do. And because of this rejection, we have earned for ourselves the judgment of God. It's on all men. Romans tells us this. There's no one who is righteous, not even one. And so we are destitute if this is our position. But the good news, the gospel is that God, from the beginning, from the foundations of the earth, sent Jesus Christ so that we could have righteousness in him, that he would pay the price for our sin, that on the cross, the Father pours out his wrath on Jesus. He takes our penalty, and instead of the penalty, what we get is the righteousness of Christ and eternal benefits in him. Union with Christ is amazing. This is only accomplished, though, through Jesus' work and our response to him through faith, trusting him and him alone. So, Christian, Ecclesiastes reminds us that our life can only find its significance when we view it in the light of God's perspective. 
because guess what? The rest of the world is really smart. They really are. They've got all kinds of ideas about what's going on under the sun. But when you reject the one who is over the sun, you reject the only thing that matters in the end when you die, the one who eternally has brought us hope and joy. So don't compare yourself to the world. Don't compare yourself to other Christians. Don't compare yourself to those that you want to be like or like the idea you have for yourself, but rather compare yourself to the law of God, the one who will judge us, the one who has all good things in Jesus Christ for those who will trust him. Look to God, the judge, and live before him in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. I'm not telling you to try harder to be better. Now you're smarter. You're like Ecclesiastes. You got this thing. I believe in the judge, so I'm good. No, the grace of God is our only answer. I encourage us to live in the grace of God. You and I have royally rebelled against God. We're unrighteous. But in God's grace, he's justified us through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I call us then to trust him and live in this great reality that our lives are meaningful before the God who judges all. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great grace. We believe that you're telling us the truth. We believe that you created us and that you will be our judge. And so, Lord, we want to keep your commandments. <laughs> and the greatest commandment of all is that we would love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. We know that we are incapable of doing that in and of ourselves, but by your grace, you give us your Holy Spirit to repent and to trust you to find our significance in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love, and I pray that you would bless your church now as they go out the rest of the day, the rest of the week, that they would find you and they would live in light of the face of God. May you be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.